0: And I wanted to get to the supplemental notes on Session 5. I want to do, at the end of the rest of the classes of this course, just hit the particular uh, Kingdom of God passages where there's symbolic or prophetic language being used. and uh, Because God has always prophesied the future in present tense. It's called the prophetic declaration. And so that happens uh, a number of times when the kingdom is spoken of as present uh, throughout the scriptures. And so I want to work through uh, a number of those passages just with a little bit of depth and detail. The problem is the classes are now two hours long. Good for you, no good for me as teachers. So, um, so we'll try to do that. We might just start in, uh, on the supplemental notes at the end of class. Um, So session five, before we move on, just for those of you who weren't in here to point out the unholy perversion of 1 Corinthians 13 in light of the kingdom and the perfect coming that we see as in a dim glass, mere dimly in 1 Corinthians 15, the kingdom, the faith, hope and love and the greatest of these being love being replaced by violence, knowledge and wealth and the greatest of these wealth. Just point Mike pointed it out and I was just like Whoa. But it really is from Constantine. This has been I mean it's it's uh and again not to point out the man, but the man exemplifies the ideology that is spreading like fire across the earth. And it's not our job to stop the fire. The Lord will stop the fire, the Lord will play it all out as he does. Uh, you know, we it's we're peanuts, literally, and uh, our job is to be faithful in uh, uh, in our own lives, with our families and the and the friends that he's put around us, and let him do the rest. So, uh, session five we'll pick up and be there. Um, uh, we're a sojourning nation. And so, uh, just again to kind of caution and put the stamp on the idea of sectarianism, because generally, when the church is, historically, when the church has been described as an independent entity, as its own people, with its own leadership and its own governance, it always ends up leading to, because there's not, in light of the inheritance of the kingdom, the inheritance is now, and so we're our own entity to receive the kingdom of God now. And it always ends up ending in uh, it always ends up ending in rebellion, whether the rebellion stays suppressed or whether the rebellion is is uh, is expressed in your various revolutionary Christian movements. Which is why China is closed. It's the primary reason why China is closed because of the uh, what's the what's the name of the rebellion that happened mid 1800s? The Kingdom of Heaven on Earth in China. Anyway, I forget my church my mission's history. Um, anyway, so uh, see the grace of God through the Holy Spirit is given to the church. There's a number of reasons why China is closed, but. That one was uh, a big piece. Obviously, Western colonialism is uh, the the main one, though. So, uh, But just so there's not any kind of we are not, we see ourselves as separate, a separate people, an independent people, but absolutely not in rebellion. I mean, we submit to, even as slaves, we submit to our masters because we are witnessing that they will, they will stand before God too. And if they're righteous and I'm less righteous, I will continue to be your slave in the age to come. If you're wicked and I'm righteous, you will be my slave in the age to come. You know, Tim Miller, <laughs> Tim Miller quote, he's living in Egypt, living above a Cinnabon. And it's like, this is not missions says, Hudson Taylor laid down two wives and multiple children on the mission fields. And when we stand before the Lord, the Lord will say to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your inheritance. And then he will look at me and say, Serve this man Cinnabons for the rest of your day. <laughs> so I think there will be that reality of servanthood under the leadership of jesus and honor of the righteous servants of the lord in the age to come not uh, not condoning wicked uh, slavery or that like paul says to philemon you know treat your slave as a brother even though you're in this age and i understand the 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 uh Infrastructure of society as it is now, but you guys both know in your own hearts your brothers before the Lord, even though he's your slave in the world first um, Peter one two you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation god's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of you who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light to declare the acts of the Lord at the day of the Lord. In which we're called into the light of the age to come. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles in this age to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that they may malign you as evildoers, yet see your honorable deeds and glorify God when He comes to judge, so that they may see your good deeds uh, before men, believe uh, your message, repent, and be saved. Uh, on the day of the Lord. And in light of this, accept every authority and every human institution for the Lord's sake. And that's when he goes into, uh, you have an example set by Jesus to follow him, slaves, and in, in relation to your master. See, the grace of God through the Holy Spirit has given us grace, which we work through, session four, page two. The grace of God is released by prayer alone. So point 3 point, uh Second main point, sustaining watchful prayer. And so, two points. I really should have made this point in the last session. All prayer is not equal. Church history is littered with monastic movements that pray much, yet live in great sin and wickedness. God will not be mocked. He knows truth in the inward parts and demands righteousness. And so, this is, I mean, it really is. Prayer... Prayer is the means of grace and God showing favor to sustain and keep us uh, to the day of the Lord. And it is only released through prayer, but it's only released through righteous prayer. Through prayer that really is repentant of our own pride, arrogance, self-exaltation, etc., etc., And it's in uh, relation to uh, repentant and believing prayer uh, in that context. So James 4, you do not have because you don't ask. You ask, you don't receive because you uh, ask wrongly to spend on your own uh, passions. He gives grace to the humble that pray. And then page 3, to accomplish its mission and purpose, the church must order order itself around righteous prayer, i.e. prayer in the context of true repentance and faith, this biblical prayer could also be described as watchful prayer or prayer with faith. So, like uh, Matthew 24, As it was in the days of Noah, so will be the Son of Man. Therefore, keep watch and pray, but pray in righteousness, not in beating, beating your servants and not feeding uh, the house in due season. And so you like what comes to mind is uh, you guys know Paul, Paul and Jen, Paul Nagaota, Nagaoka, and Paul's dad is like one of those really radical Buddhist monks in Japan. Not like and so I remember last year sitting in a in a small group you were there, in which he was sharing. He went over and. Uh, and spent a couple of weeks with his dad and the intensity of his dad's lifestyle I mean just nuts how much time they spend in prayer and meditation and uh, and the conditions that they live under how much time radical Hindus radical Muslims spend in prayer and radical Christians and radical Israelites. I mean, it really is. It, it really does not matter how much you pray, as what kind of prayers are offered. And it does matter. I mean, it, I I don't. I take that back. It does matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much you pray if the prayer is not in righteousness. And so uh, this language is borrowed from the Old Testament, so I just copied and pasted. And so when Jesus is talking about, and you get the exhortations uh, in the New Testament about, you know, in Matthew 6, do not pray like they do. Do not offer your prayers, they pray in public for the praise of men. Do not do like they do. The context of what they're hearing is the Old Testament scriptures when the Lord talks about prayer. And so I just copied and pasted a few of them in. Psalm 66, I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened and has attended to the voice of my prayer. Proverbs 15, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked. So he's talking about people who have the right faith in Israel, bringing sacrifices, uh, but the, their hearts are, uh, are uh, wicked. So, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. The Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue Righteousness. Isaiah 1 Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates because they become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression bring justice to the fatherless plead the widow's cur- cause i mean that is just so intense cuz i just don't want you to fall under the delusion that if we just pray more then god will do more and god will not be mocked like that it's just he's just way smarter that if he judges the motives of men's hearts and if men are after in their hearts that's why every letter And Paul presses over and over. I am a servant of Christ. I am not a servant of men. I don't fear them. I'm not here so that you'll serve me or call yourselves a servant of Paul. I'm a servant of Christ. I want you to be a servant of Christ. I live that you will stand before your Master, blameless and holy, on the day that He comes. I mean, it so comes down to The Lord will judge the motives of of men's hearts. And I don't even mind that other men preach the gospel for financial gain or for their own honor and glory. I'm glad that the gospel is being preached. But in the end, they'll build houses that are just like themselves. And they'll build men and women who preach the gospel for their own glory and honor. And they'll build houses that are not servants of Christ. I mean, it's just so like... All right, so... uh, Page uh, page 4, Jeremiah 14, Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of these people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. Micah 3, Then they'll cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. At that time, He will hide His face from them because of the evil they have done. Zechariah 7, when I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord. And the scary, three, the scary thing about all those verses in the prophetical writings is that if you look right after every one of those where the Lord declares you bring consistent sacrifices, your festivals, your prayers, your fasting, etc., etc., but I detest them. And then immediately after every one of those, what does he talk about? Your false prophets prophesy to you about the out of their own imaginations and ideas. It's just like so intense. And they do not prepare the people for the judgment that's coming to walk in righteousness and the fear of the Lord. And so 1 John, because I... I was I was reading 1 John this morning and then I saw the next verse because the next verse is chapter 4 verse 1. And so this is these are the verses that the apostles have in their mind and the people have in their mind. The ones above this. He says 1 John 1 dear friends if our hearts do not condemn us we have confidence before God in prayer and receive from him anything we ask. Because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command. We are servants of Jesus Christ. We believe in his name. Which doesn't mean we just intellectually assent. It means our lives are for his glory. We love him and we live for him. Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. And the way we love one another is to spur one another on concerning the day of the Lord. And to encourage each other. To live before Him in their lives, not our own. Those who obey His commands live in Him and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. By the Spirit He gave us. The Spirit of Christ as a deposit of the resurrection. And then, what's the next verse? Freaking mind-blowing. The next verse. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, See whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you recognize the spirit of God. And in his context, the false prophets are the Gnostic prophets that do not acknowledge the flesh of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and therefore destroy the hope of many. First John 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. We know that He hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have if we asked Him. So, it's only to the righteous that God gives grace, and thus even those with a right theology and even a right practice, will ultimately fall if a humble, repentant, believing heart's abandoned. And so it's not just... I mean, theology is important. Practice is important. But the whole point is that we stand before God with a clean conscience and endure the day of the Lord. And so the whole point of the theology is to produce repentance. The whole point of the praxis The practice, the lifestyle is to keep a a repentant and righteous heart that day in and day out, whose servant are we? Who do we live for? How do we relate to each other in that? You know what I'm saying? Like, a guy knew I was talking about this and uh, and he disappeared on me for three days. And... uh, And I didn't know where he went, and he didn't talk to me. And it was like a year later that he told me, because I was just talking about this, you know, just, and I didn't even, at the time, I didn't really have context. I just knew it was right. And he said the Holy Spirit came on him so intensely that he had to leave his family, go to a place he knew where he would be alone, and he could not eat for three days, because his stomach was nauseous at how he had lived his whole life in ministry to exalt himself, that he would be written in history books, that people would follow him, that he would, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's just like, seriously, we are going to stand before the Lord. You know what I mean? And our lives are going to be judged according to the motives of our heart. And it's not like rocket science. And it's not, it's just, this is the reality and truth of our lives. And I'm not just sitting here hammering you guys over and over just because I want like to establish, like I want you to stand before the Lord because I'm going to stand before the Lord. And I have to prove like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians uh, four. He's talking about the jealousy and envy, malice and 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 division in the church in Corinth. And he's talking about how people are they're they're saying they follow Paul or Apollos or they follow uh, they follow Peter. And he's like, who are we? But we we are servants of the Lord in chapter three, only servants one man plants the seed, another man waters, but God's the one who makes it grow. And we each build our own houses. And I know I have built my house on Jesus Christ, on the foundation, and established my house on people following Jesus, not myself. That's what I've labored towards. Other men might build their houses on themselves, and their houses will be destroyed on the day of the Lord. And in chapter 4, he he. He sums up and he says, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Because this is what twisted hearts always do. They use revelation and understanding from God to manipulate and dominate other people. So that they will be servants and they will draw men after themselves rather than they use revelation to love others and encourage each other to encourage others, you're going to stand before God. Walk in righteousness before him. I'm just a servant. You know, they fall down. The Cornelius falls down before Peter. What are you doing? I am a servant of the Lord. And so it's just that like, because the Lord is going to give you revelation on the scriptures. He's going to give you insight You guys are equipped and skilled to minister the gospel. And you are going to, I mean, the further away people are from understanding where history is going like Paul was in Acts 14 in a context where nobody, everybody was complete idol worshipers. They preach the gospel. God heals somebody in context of their preaching the gospel and they all come to make sacrifices to them. I mean, it's just the way of the human heart that human beings will bow down to people who have truth and power because we are just idolatrous in that way. And so that's his point is that I do have revelation and understanding on the Scriptures, but I am a servant of Christ and you ought to relate to me that way. And the fact that you have, you have division in your midst just shows that you have idolatry in your midst. That in your hearts you are living to serve men and not serve Christ. And so he says, now it's required that those who have been given a trust may prove faithful. So he's saying, I've been entrusted with knowledge of the scriptures, but that doesn't mean anything. I have to prove faithful in the situation. I care very little if if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not mean I'm innocent. The Lord judges me. He says, my conscience is clear that I have tried to establish in you the day of the Lord and the reality and I have preached the kingdom of God among you and I have preached who Christ is and I have encouraged you to serve Christ. My conscience is clear, but it doesn't mean I'm innocent because I may have said and functioned in ways that caused you to follow me. And it may be on that day, it, it may be on that day, that because he's saying on that day, if it is like it is now, I will endure the day of fire, but you will all be burnt, because you're following men and not Christ. And so that's his point. My conscience is clear in what I am trying to encourage you in, but I'm not innocent. You see what you see what he's saying? And so, but it's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. And so, I mean, it really does. Like, we are living in light of the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is when he will expose the motives of men's hearts. And so this is what we encourage one another and we develop communities and we, re, we relate to each other in a normal way. It is, it, it is normal in light of the day of the Lord that we don't manipulate each other and use each other. It's normal that we treat each other as fellow sons and daughters of our Father and fellow servants of Christ. And it's really important When greedy and idolatrous men creep into the church, men who who are immoral and work their way into women's houses and who are power hungry and self vain ambition to draw men after themselves. Like this is disaster because it leaves confusion and it it just it kills belief in this thing. You know what I'm saying? Um so page five. The last part of this is just uh on your diagram. Um I just feel like I is it just me or does it feel like I'm just saying the most simpleton things? you know what i'm saying like why is this so simpleton yet it doesn't happen like why do we continue to build empires and self-exaltation and relate to each other in ways that aren't just normal it's like it's staggering it really is staggering to me um so uh in your, in your diagram, I just... Uh, and again, uh, all this kind of bleeds all together, obviously. It's never as pretty on a diagram as it is in real life. But I still like to make diagrams. Is that we we employ these secondary means to sustain righteous prayer as the primary means of grace to walk in faithfulness in our calling. And so these are... Like, these are means, a watchful lifestyle, fasting, devotion in the Scriptures, giving to the poor, etc. So, you could say they're means of grace, but they're really means unto the means of grace. They're means unto the place of keeping ourselves in the place of prayer and righteousness before the Lord and spurring ourselves and each other on to, to uh what we ought to be about in this age. And so, in this way, that's why I just it, it keeps prayer as the primary means of grace and as the focal point of this is what your own life is about. This is when you are in the mission field, when you are in whatever ministry context you're about, you are about organizing the people, slimming down the infrastructure And organizing the people in such a way that they pray consistently together, walk in love, pray consistently, equipping them in their own lives. And so prayer, because you can't just, you know, when you read books on prayer, you walk away from books on prayer going, Man, I just need to pray more. I'm just a really bad person. You know what I mean? I'm just really lame and undisciplined. And that is not the point of prayer at all. The reason for prayer is it's absolutely necessary. And if you don't pray, you will die. I mean, that is just like... Prayer has to have a validation behind it. Because if you are not in the place of prayer, worship and your faith in God shrivels up. And your encounters with God and your living knowledge of Him shrivels up. And if you're not in the place of prayer the drive to walk in righteousness and be holy as he is holy shrivels up and you just end up coasting on autopilot cruise control and then if you're you don't stay in the place of prayer you're you don't hear the holy spirit speaking to you about your family about your friends you know what i mean and telling them and warning them earnestly about the things to come and people start walking in righteousness and you're just like well that's just how it is. And that's where you don't want a big ruckus about it or whatever. And so, so that's why it, it's, yeah. So, uh, so the primary way to maintain a watchful prayer is a watchful lifestyle, which is outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, um, requiring uh, acts of righteousness. So I just break up three main areas for... The Watchful Lifestyle, if you want to write in there, F, F, and F. (laughs) That sounded no good. So, finances, forgiveness, and fasting as the three primary things in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, are the way that we discipline our lives to keep in the place of prayer. And the bizarre thing, like John Wesley you know when he talks about the chief of these means are prayer whether in secret or great congregation searching the scriptures and receiving the lord's supper and then number 2 right underneath it he was so intense the the kind of older english takes the edge off of it but so two but we allow that the whole value of the means depends on their actual subservience to the end of religion That consequently, all these means, when separate from the end, end are less than nothing and vanity. That if they do not actually conduce to the knowledge and love of God, they are not acceptable in his sight. Yea, rather, they are an abomination before him, a stink in his nostrils. He is weary to bear them. Above all, if they are used as a kind of commutation... So if the means of grace, whether primary or secondary, are used as a substitute for actual walking in righteousness, repentance, and faith before God, for the religion they were designed to subserve, it is not easy to to find words for the enormous folly and wickedness of thus turning God's arms against Himself of keeping Christianity out of the hearts of those very means by which we're ordained to bring us in how intense is that I and mean, that is so intense and it gives context for the purpose of the even the the festivals and sacrifices were designed by God as a means of grace for sojourning you know they were designed to keep the people in a place of repentance and expectation of the day of judgment and walking in righteousness. But the Lord says, "I I don't take pleasure in sacrifice and burnt offering. I take pleasure in obedience. Your sacrifices weary me. I don't take pleasure in the sacrifices of the wicked, the prayer of the wicked brought with those sacrifices. He takes pleasure in the reality of righteousness and therefore out of that desire out of the place of fear and trembling concerning the day of the Lord when our lives will be laid bare before Him. He says, out of that place, then you pray and fast and give to the poor, etc., etc. To help you keep in the place. You know what I mean? Like You give to the poor in remembrance that God is generous to the poor in the age to come even though the wicked are not generous to the poor god is generous to the poor and so we give to the poor to consistently remind us of the day of the lord and how god relates to the poor and if when and this is like like i was just so i've been so pained over this the last 6 months that i have not been out of the united states in 8 years And I have so lost touch. I have completely lost touch with the poor. It's so ridiculous. And the Lord has been gracious to my wife and I. The Lord always puts a couple people, a couple people in our lives, the Lord always puts in our lives that have need and are a little bit, a lot of bit annoying and frustrating to deal with. And it's like, and my wife and I go back and forth over and over He's using it. He's developing a pattern. He's going to keep coming to us over and over. And then we just have to keep saying, but this is the way God has put the poor in our lives, that we can care for the poor. Even if he's mishandling it, he's going to have to stand before the Lord. But the Lord has put these two men in my life that I might express giving to the poor in light of the day of the Lord. And to keep myself, and I remember I would go to, you know, the the earlier years in my walk with the Lord, I would make the, like, just press to get out of the country once a year so that I would see the reality of poverty, just to keep everything in perspective. You know what I mean? And, like, this is the reality of what we actually need and don't need, and conform my life in context to Preaching the gospel, etc. Um, what time is it? It's done. We're out of time. Um, okay, just to survey. Uh, so the main point of the Sermon on the Mount and giving to the poor, in prayer, and and fasting. Every time he contrasts it to the Pharisees, and that's the main point. Is all Jesus is doing is he's saying God has given you means. To keep you in the place of prayer and righteous prayer to receive grace. But you do not use those means f- like the Pharisees do. You use them for the right reason. And uh, to maintain righteousness. And so you guys know most of those stories. Let me see if there's any I want to just bring up. Um, I love page 6, First Peter 3. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may, may obtain a blessing. And so he's just doing, it's just commentary on the, on the Lord's Prayer of of uh, you have to uh, forgive uh, in light of the Lord's forgiving people until the day of the Lord. And then fasting, He just does the same thing. Don't fast like they do. They do everything for men to see. All right, so, we didn't get to the supplemental notes, but next week. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we love You. We thank you for the scriptures that warn us. And um, um, man, I can't. I can't think another thought. I cannot think another thought until I read Leonard Ravenhill. Because I forgot to read it, and like I, Leonard Ravenhill. Oh, that believers would become eternity conscious. Obviously, you'll hear you know, some of this. But, oh, that believers would become eternity conscious. If we could live every moment of every day under the eye of God, if we did every act in light of the judgment seat, if we sold every article in light of the judgment seat, if we prayed every prayer in light of the judgment seat, if we tied all our possessions in light of the judgment seat, if we preachers prepared every sermon with one eye on, the da- on damned humanity and the other on the judgment seat, then we would have a Holy Ghost revival that would shake this earth and that in no time would liberate millions of precious souls. And I don't know about, you know, obviously, but just that reality of everything in light of the day of the Lord, we walk out with fear and trembling. And it really is... When it comes down to the motives of men's hearts, the reason that nobody else talk, the reason that most men don't talk about the issues of motive, self promotion, greed, etc., is because they're walking in it. That's why you don't hear sermons on it, because they're not fighting with it in their own hearts, and the day of the Lord isn't really real to them that they're going to stand before the Lord and give an account. So, Father, we ask You, and we just say we know we are part of that crowd going down a wide road towards destruction, and we ask You for mercy and grace that You would deliver us from temptation, that You would establish us in view of Your day and the day of the Lord when we'll stand before You, that You would establish us in righteousness in Jesus' name. Amen. kingdom of God's at hand. Um, so again, what we're doing with uh, the supplemental notes is just hitting specific, uh, The I mean you have like a hundred times where uh, the kingdom of God in the New Testament is clearly and obviously uh, in line with, uh, with Jewish understanding of the day and uh, is eschatological will be established at the resurrection when the Messiah comes, etc., but there's 10 or 11 there that are a little uh, uh, either use figurative language or are a little uh, uh, confusing in light of of uh, Platonism. And so the first one, whenever you hear somebody, uh, whenever you hear a, a Platonist give a theology of the kingdom of God, you'll always get like the same 10 or 11 just lined out in succession one after another. And it's usually... Like it's usually the same The same ones are given in the same order, kind of building on each other. And so the first one that uh, usually gets uh, uh, referenced is the kingdom of God as a hand, just because of its, uh, its placement, it being the message that John the Baptist, summarizing the message that John the Baptist preached in Matthew 3. And then that gets expounded in Luke 3. And then it's the core, you know, when Jesus goes out after the temptation, uh, preaching the kingdom of God. And then his disciples, he sends them out two by two, preaching the kingdom of God's at hand. And so it's usually, uh, it becomes uh, the uh, foundation of everything. So, introduction to the phrase just to say it on the front end that. the the burden of proof in the situation of a of Jesus introducing a new spiritualized kingdom and uh, that he is some kind of different messiah than they expected and that uh that the uh it's some sort of spiritualized resurrection etc the burden of proof that Jesus came to introduce a new understanding of the kingdom is completely on the uh on the backs of those who argue that it, it it should be assumed unless it's clearly stated otherwise that the previously held notion of what the kingdom of god is continues from old testament to new testament so unless there is a specific place where it clearly articulates that the kingdom of god is is something different from the Messiah walking into Jerusalem, into the temple, setting up a throne, calling on the angels, raising the dead in glory, establishing a throne that extends over all the nations, etc. Unless unless there's somewhere where it's clearly articulated that this is not what the kingdom of God is and now it's changed to uh, something else. Then that needs to be pointed out, and usually where that gets pointed out is in the parables which we'll get will uh'll we'll deal with use of the kingdom of God in the parables uh later on um but usually it's in the parables that you get those twisted in such a way uh as not to reinforce the prophets and the covenants but to change them so um Point two, the kingdom of God's at hand. We talked about this, that it's uh, the fundamental declaration concerning the kingdom of God in the New Testament is its its nearness or its being at hand. And just that phrase, at hand, is uh, kind of a carryover from the Old English. And so if something is at hand, right, it's close. And so that's just the idea, is that it's, it's close. So the question is if it's at, if it's at hand, if it's close to you, what does close mean? And the two basic ideas are that it's close spatially or metaphysically or it's close chronologically. And so either it's close spatially that you know that uh the metaphysical reality is close to the the immaterial metaphysical reality is close to the material uh metaphysical reality, or that uh in some way the Messiah or God represents and embodies the kingdom of God and therefore is close to them because he's incarnated, which is the same kind of idea since God is incorporeal and in immaterial and, and therefore he is uh, Put on materiality, or, or page two. Uh, that it is temporal or chronological. That the kingdom of God is close at hand, and so I'm gonna. I'm just going to make the point that the kingdom that it's it's the second one, that it's not you know like uh, like uh, Second Corinthians five where he talks about, or the end of Second Corinthians 4, where he talks about, you know, uh, light and momentary afflictions for what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. And, uh, or like uh, uh, Hebrews 11, where he talks about faith is the substance of things unseen. What is it? Mind blank. Yeah. Some sort of the things hoped for, evidence of things and whatever not yet seen, and his point clearly in both of those is referencing the second coming, and so the things that are not seen are are not seen chronologically. Rather than metaphysically, okay. So there, I, there. Uh, so that's a that's just a general way of seeing. God's relation to creation and redemptive history as a whole is you know like Abraham calling that which is not chronologically as though it were rather than metaphysically immaterial material. So see the day of the Lord initiates uh the establishment of the kingdom of God and thus there are inherently they are inherently interrelated. They're not exactly the same thing but You know, it's like the word in prayer. You you can't really do one without the other. And so um, the two two are fused together in their mind. Uh, Because of this, the phraseology of both are somewhat interchangeable. So like Luke 10, when he sends the disciples out, he says, Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is at hand. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its street and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to, your, to our feet, we wipe off against you. Be sure, Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is at hand. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day. What day? The day of the kingdom of God. For Sodom then, for that town, and then in the parallel uh Matthewan version in chapter 10 you get the parallel version uh, where it makes it clear uh, truly truly I say to you it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment so in their mind they have clear in their mind that the day of judgment the day of the Lord initiates light and glory breaking forth over the whole earth and the judgment of the wicked etc initiating the kingdom of the Messiah that's handed over to the saints as co-heirs. Luke twenty two for the time of punishment, or Luke twenty one when he's he's it's uh, another uh, parallel passage, somewhat to Matthew twenty four. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. There will be signs in the sun, moon, stars, on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring of the tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror apprehensive of what's coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Then these things will begin to take place. Stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is at hand or drawing near." Look at the fig tree and all uh, look at the fig tree and all the trees when they sprout leaves you you can see for yourselves and know that that summer is near or at hand even so when you see these things happening you know that the kingdom of God is near or at hand so re- referencing the time of punishment and the kingdom of God being at hand and so you know all the disciples are assuming that here pretty soon you know Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem and he's going to go to the temple. He's going to set up a throne. The Father's going to anoint him. He's probably going to be taken up. And with the angels, he's going to dis- descend down. He's going to open up a pit outside of Jerusalem, Topheth, the Valley of Ben-Hanom, and he's going to separate the nations before him and throw them into a lake of fire, Joel 3. So that's kind of what's in their mind. And uh, But the two are kind of interrelated together, that when you have the... The uh, Well, whatever. Sorry, a little sidetrack. One, the proclamation of the nearness of the day of the Lord is simply a reiteration, therefore, of the prophetic declaration already spoken throughout the Scriptures. So there's uh, quite a number of these, Isaiah 13 being foundational, just because Isaiah, Isaiah 13 and Daniel 9 are the two Scriptures directly quoted. I mean, there's a lot of different Scriptures that... Are brought to mind while Jesus is talking in matthew twenty four on the Olivet discourse, but it 's really Isaiah thirteen and Daniel nine that are the two ones that are quoted specifically isaiah thirteen isaiah Daniel nine is kind of quoted therefore when when you see the abomination that causes desolation, let the reader spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand but Isaiah thirteen is the only one where he quotes like a passage out of it in reference to when he descends after the distress of those days. So right before the passage where he quotes, where the sun and moon grow dark and etc., the heavenly bodies are shaken, Isaiah 13, verse 6, "...wail, for the day of the Lord is near or at hand. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them." They'll be in anguish like a woman in labor. They'll look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy its sinners from it or make the earth desolate. Joel 1, consecrate a fast, page 3, call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand or is near. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel 2, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on the holy hill. Let all the inhabitants of the land or the earth uh, tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is at hand or near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then you get, you know, immediately following the end of chapter 2 in Joel where those who... Uh, uh, Whatever he says that Peter quotes in Acts 2, signs in the heavens on the earth and whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be, the, will, will be saved from the day of the Lord. And then right into Joel 3 when he distinguishes out, he gathers all the nations uh, into the valley of Jehoshaphat and, and, and divides them out. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is nearer at hand. In the valley of decision, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and earth quake. Which, by the way, I have just been on a a the whole Zion bit is blowing my mind, which I want to. I would love to just launch into that, but it's so like, all right, Zephaniah 1, I want to like pick up my Bible and just work through like 10 passages, it's amazing, the concept of Zion as a signpost, Zephaniah 1, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly, listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior there, and the day will be like a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds, blackness. The fire of his jealousy, in the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. He'll make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. So again, it's not, it's not uh, the phraseology that John the Baptist comes in the wilderness. You know, people don't see that as strange what he's saying. Because he's simply saying that he's simply reiterating what the prophets have already said, so like uh below, it's a prophetical reiteration point number two, as in Luke three, because if you look right below that on the bottom of the page, Matthew three is the parallel version, and Matthew sums up the exact same thing that Luke three says in the phrase, "Repent for the kingdom of heavens at hand." And so Luke 3, you get the explanation of what what he's saying. Repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of the Lord, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written, the words of, the, uh, of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Raise up the valleys, bring down the mountains, for the glory of the Lord will be revealed to all mankind. Clearly a reference to the day of the Lord. And so, as the as the prophets say, before the day of the Lord, a voice will will uh, make straight the paths before that ends in the day of the Lord. And that's where you get the idea of a, uh, a narrow path unto entrance into the kingdom. One of the uh, places, verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? So he equates, obviously, Isaiah 40 with the coming wrath. And thereby, Matthew 3 is equating the kingdom of heaven with the coming wrath. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering if they're, in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah who would execute The day of wrath and usher in the glory of the Lord that all humanity might see. John answered them all, I baptize with water, but one more powerful than I will come. His winnowing fork he'll baptize with fire, like uh, Malachi 3, like Isaiah 66. When the fire of the Lord will consume the entire earth. Uh, His winnowing forks in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire on the day of the Lord, the day of wrath with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the gospel to them, the good news. And so it's exactly the same message. The kingdom of God and the day of wrath are initiated at the same time. And so likewise, the same way that obviously the kingdom was not in- inaugurated or initiated with John, nor was it inaugurated or initiated with Jesus, it was clearly not inaugurated initiated with the prophets. And so the point is, is that it's simply uh, time is relative to God, which we'll get there in a second. So page 4, the day of the Lord and thus the kingdom of God are still considered to be near after all the events that are typically interpreted as the initiation of the spiritualized kingdom. So Romans 3, do this knowing the time, that it's already the hour for you to, to awaken from sleep for now, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night's almost over; the day is near or at hand. Hebrews ten. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, without wavering, for He who promises faithful. And do, and Let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day, uh, the day drawing near, or the day uh, approaching. And in, in if you remember from Hebrews 10, the, the, the whole passage is in light of the Day of Judgment and, uh, and fire and the Lord's return, and we're not of those who, who, uh, who uh, whatever, back down or retreat. Philippians 3, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself by the Holy Spirit. God anointed him with a spirit, set him on high, raised him from the dead, and by that same spirit he uh, he waits to make his enemies his footstool when he returns. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Rejoice in the Lord always, because again you remember the rejoicing is in light of the resurrection of the body. When the dead are birthed from the earth and shout for joy, rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand or is near or coming soon. James 5, be patient then until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. How patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm for the Lord's coming is at hand or is near. So he actually uses a farming analogy, which I don't think he just means to... To communicate, obviously he's meaning to communicate the patience aspect, but in the analogy is a picture of the resurrection of the dead in which he sows the seed and then the seed comes up out of the ground and he's patient for the rains representing the Holy Spirit to raise the dead. 1 Peter uh, 4, But they, pagans, will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The end of all things is near or at hand, therefore be... Clear minded and self controlled, so that you can pray above all, love each other deeply. So, a little bit of the problem the confusion because people will argue for a spiritualized kingdom, saying that that phrase is never spoken through the book of Acts, nor specifically repeated in repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand or kingdom of God's at hand. It's not specifically in that exact phraseology repeated. In the Book of Acts or in the Epistles, so therefore it's argued that that uh, somehow things have changed. Obviously, the specific phrase is, is not spoken of before the Synoptic go- the Gospels and the Book of Acts, or I mean the 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 Synoptic Gospels and the, and. But I guess it's not in the Book of John either, is it? The Kingdom of God's at hand. John three, where you get the. The, uh, you'll see the kingdom of God. Anyway, so that phrase, uh, but that doesn't that doesn't mean anything if the idea that they're communicating is the same thing. And so, uh, I just thought I would uh, quote a couple things since Chad brought it up. In uh, the early church fathers, you get uh, the Epistle of Clement, where he is. It's really the earliest. Church father that we have from the apostles. He was uh, fourth bishop of Rome. Is it fourth? Was he? Where's he at after the martyrdom? Of isn't there a controversy about where Clement is after Peter's martyrdom? If he's right after Peter or if he's a couple down the line? Okay, so some people put him earlier as the one succeeding Peter, like 70 A.D.-ish, and then some people put him later as the fourth bishop of Rome, during the time when John is seeing the revelation on the Isle of Patmos. So either way, you have first century uh, direct hand uh, account, and you get... um, in his epistle to uh, the Corinthians, I mean, it sounds just like a a letter that Paul would write, and he's just pressing the entire time on humility and repentance. And uh, let's see here, where's the where's the? So uh, he says in chapter forty-two, which each chapter is like. Two paragraphs long, so it 's not so uh, forty two the apostles have preached the apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ from God. Christ therefore was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ. Both these appointments then were made in an orderly manner according to the will of God. Having therefore received their orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and established in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy Ghost, they went forth proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. And so Clement uses the exact same phraseology, equating that what they're doing in the book of Acts, which is I mean if you just look at it, you know, with a little bit of common sense, Acts two, Peter gets up and says, God said he would pour out his spirit right before the day of the Lord. God anointed Jesus as the Messiah, you crucified him. Therefore the day of the Lord's at hand, you know, and they come trembling because they're going to uh they're going to get destroyed. And and likewise with Acts three, I mean the general the 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 overall Uh, Common sense interpretation would say that this is what they're saying. But they don't use the exact phraseology. And so Clement, but Clement uses the exact to summarize the book of Acts and all the epistles. He uses the exact phraseology that is used with John the Baptist and Jesus. Um, And then... He says later in chapter 50, all the generations from Adam even unto this day have passed away, but those who through the grace of God have been made perfect in love now possess a place among the godly and shall be made manifest at the revelation of the kingdom of Christ. And then, (laughs) then he quotes Isaiah 26. Freaked me out when we were reading that the other day. All right, uh, and then Polycarp, this is one that, Just uh, that Chad just pointed out before class to him, all things in heaven and earth are subject. Polycarp is Polycarp's the disciple of John, and uh, and so you get firsthand uh, information account to him. All things in heaven and earth are subject. Him, uh, him, every spirit serves, speaking of Jesus, he comes as the judge of the living and the dead, his blood will God require of those who do not believe in him, but he who raised him up from the dead will raise us us, raise us up also, so the Father raised Jesus bodily from the dead, therefore he'll raise us up also, if we do his will and walk in his commandments and love what he loved, keeping ourselves from all unrighteousness. "...covetousness, love of money, evil speaking, false witness, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, or blow for blow, or cursing for cursing, but being mindful of what the Lord said in His teaching, Judge not, that you may not be judged. Forgive, and it shall be forgiven unto you. Be merciful, that you may obtain mercy. With what measure you mete out, it shall be measured against you. And once more, blessed are the poor and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God." And so clearly in context to the resurrection uh, is the kingdom of God. And then in uh, chapter 5, If we please him in this present world, we shall receive also the future world, according as he has promised to us, that he will raise us again from the dead, and that if we live worthily of him, we shall also reign together with him, provided provided only we believe. In like manner yet, let the young men also be blameless in all things, being especially careful to preserve purity and keeping themselves in as uh, as with a bridle from every kind of evil, for it is well that they should be uh, cut off from the lusts that are in the world, since every lust warth against the spirit, and neither fornicators nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind shall inherit the kingdom of God. And so, uh, anyway... Phraseology, King of Gods at hand, focus. All right. So, e page four. Thus, the timing of the day of the Lord is considered to be near because it is in relation to God, and time itself is relative to Him. And so, uh, so this, you may say, well, that seems to be. This is the whole point of what Second Peter three. This is this is what Peter is answering. Is our question that we are struggling with. Maybe not directly, but dang close to directly. It's the exact same issue that he's answering. So he says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming he promised, referencing the day of the Lord? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And so... Ever since the beginning, since the fall, the rebellion of Adam, human beings have been scoffing, saying the day of the Lord isn't going to come. In Enoch's day, everybody was saying the day of the Lord is not near at hand. It's not going to come. And Enoch has the vision. And Noah, and Abraham, and David. I mean, the whole time, people, when the Israelites come up to Mount Sinai, they're, they are expecting that this is the day of the Lord. I mean, you have the Lord descending on the holy mountain with fire and tremblings and and a trumpet blast and I mean, and it is. Where Paul make the direct reference that Mount Sinai is? Oh, in Hebrews, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 12 in the last part of Hebrews 12. We don't approach the mountain that's trembling with fire, etc. And so Mount Sinai really was a picture of the Lord uh, of the Day of the Lord. But the scoffers—it's the same argument that the scoffers have always made—that God is not going to hold human beings accountable and judge the earth with fire. And so uh, he answers the question about you know God's prophets from Abel forward. All the prophets have basically said the same thing. The day of the Lord is at hand. I mean, this like summarizes the message of all the prophets from the from the rebellion that like Acts 321, repent before the time of the recovery of breath, he must remain in heaven until the time of the restoration of all things, as has been prophesied since the beginning of, of the world. And so the same there's basically the same message since the rebellion is the day of the Lord is at hand it's going to come and so Peter is saying there's always been scoffers ever since the rebellion that say that it's not at hand that the prophets are lying that it's never going to come etc he says but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed the earth was formed out of water by water and by these waters the world that time was deluged and destroyed suddenly that it was that it happened uh that, that uh, in the same way that the scoffer said that the flood, because you know, Noah, Noah obviously took a long time to build the boat, because the whole time Noah is saying the day of the Lord's at hand, um, or whatever he would be saying, there's no record of. Okay, verse 7, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. And so you have the whole thing set up of the scoffers say the day of judgment is never going to come since the creation of the world but do not forget this one thing in relation to the day, the day of the judge the day of judgment being at hand with the lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day the lord is not slow in keeping his promises some understand slowness he's patient not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And so the day of the Lord really is near. But to the Lord, a day's like a thousand years. And so it's the time relative to the Lord uh, versus human beings. And and where he's quoting from, where Peter's quoting from, is Psalm ninety. Where uh, I forget in Psalm ninety. Let's just pick it up and read it so in Psalm 90 where Peter's quoting from it's the only Psalm of Moses he says Lord you have been our dwelling place through all generations referencing himself as the righteous you have been our uh, yeah so before the mountains were born or brought forth uh, the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God and so then he transitions That you existed before everything and after everything you created everything. He says, After the fall you said to Adam, Turn, you turn men back to dust, saying, Return to the dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up, by evening it's dry and withered. And so in relative to us, we're we have the lifespan of grass, but in relative to the Lord, he's from everlasting to everlasting. And so when you get the age thing, even with human beings, you know like when you're a kid, 10 years is forever. Seriously, when you're 16, like you can't even imagine 10 years because you've only been alive 16. You know, like you it, you just have no, Benjamin has no scope being five about what 20 years from now will be like. He just can't even, it's so I can tell him, you know, the day of your marriage is at hand, son. In like 15 years, you're going to get married. I mean, that is so close. It is at hand because obviously I've lived 32 and i have a little bit more perspective and you know what i mean and it even me 15 years is a long time but like being married 10 years it seems like me my marriage was just a year or two ago like it just doesn't feel very long and so imagine the guy who is from ancient days you know from everlasting to everlasting and you have a scope of 6000 years and men live 900 600 400 200 70 to 80 by strength now you know what i mean like i mean there's just and so that's the point is in light of psalm 90 where peter quotes from moses is making the point that god is from everlasting to everlasting and he told adam and his and his sons to return to the dust in light of the resurrection, and men are like grass. And a day, the day of the Lord is like a day to Him in the future, but a thousand years to us. You see what I'm saying? Uh, maybe it's not. But that's the point, is that it's time is relative. And, uh, and even uh, 6,000 years of, of rebellion before the day of the Lord is, is uh, not long in His sight. It's not slowness, as most men would understand slowness. F, the nearness of the day of the Lord on page 5 and the establishment of the kingdom is at the heart of all the New Testament uh, apostolic declaration. Thus, the witness commanded the apostles essentially remains repent for the kingdom of God's at hand, thus assuming temporal or chronological nearness. And so Acts 1, he appears to them for 40 days, teaches on the kingdom of God, He teaches on the kingdom of God. They ask the question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at that time, which throughout the prophets, when God regathers Israel to the land and the resurrection, punishes the wicked, etc. So they have at this time, Jesus teaches for 40 days, and their expectation is that it's at hand, and God is going to do it. Acts, uh, Acts 2 and 3, like we talked about, Acts 10, he commanded us to testify that he's the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and dead. And so, just deducting that he commanded us to testify about the kingdom of God being restored to Israel, and he's the judge of the living and the dead. And they expect it to be soon, as soon as they preach in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, obviously. Acts 20, now I know that none among you whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up, give you an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified. Um, Flip over to page 6. A little out of order. Repeated. Acts 20. And then those are just uh, a number of comments kingdom passages that make it clear that uh, that he is, in their minds, the entrance into the kingdom is near at hand. Because they wouldn't be exhorting, Paul wouldn't be exhorting the Ephesians or the Colossians or the Thessalonians about living a life worthy so that they'll receive a rich welcome into the kingdom of God if they're not expecting that Jesus is going to return and usher them into the kingdom of God. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's not like they have in mind that live a life worthy so that you'll die, and when he comes in a couple thousand years and sets up his kingdom and you descend with him, then you'll have a rich welcome. Like, he's exhorting them. The whole language has the atmosphere and tone that they're expecting it at hand. All right. Shoot. But, yeah, I mean, the confusion, it's just part of how life is in this age, you know, especially after the Tower of Babel, and you have different cultures and, and different languages and culture changes and language changes, and so you have phraseology that, that uh, wasn't there, during the time of the exile with Daniel, when the when uh, it wasn't there before the exile, but then Daniel is given the revelation, the saints will inherit the kingdom, the kingdom will be handed over to the saints of the Most High, etc. And so then you have the development during the time of waiting in light of that vision of the phraseology of kingdom of God in light of... The visions to describe and sum up what the prophets have said about when the Messiah comes. And so it's just part of how it is that it was a phraseology particular to time and space and a particular group of people that now that phrase, kingdom of God, has changed definition and it changed definition fairly radically in the 3rd and 4th century to mean a metaphysical thing rather than a temporal thing. Shoot. What do you do with the one that uh, says like, the with signs to be observed, but it's in your midst? Yeah, we'll get there. Oh, that's okay. another one. of. Just to make sure. Yeah, that's usually... That's top on the list of ones that get quoted. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll work through them one at a time. I don't have complete clarity on all of them. All I know that the way forward... And this is what I'm realizing. The way forward is not the commentary of any man. The way forward is, and this is funny because this is how my whole life has been and how the Lord has trained me in the Word. I just didn't realize it. Like, the way forward is, ask the Holy Spirit, look at the Scriptures, back to Genesis. You know, like, ask the Holy Spirit, what does it mean? Back it up in the Scriptures that they were reading In light of Genesis, rather than look at the scriptures, read Plato or some disciple of his, then build New Testament, then reinterpret prophetic writings, then mythologize Genesis. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just completely opposite. And so, like, and this is because I've always gotten this question over the years, over and over and over and over. As people come up to me afterwards... I need like books. You gotta tell me books that I can read that are saying the same stuff. And I'm like, well, you know, you can read part of this one, this one, and this one. And but now I realize that that is completely the wrong way to direct people. I so now I realize the way you direct people is: listen. Every time you read a passage that you can't, that is not clear to you, then for like example, Romans eight. Now, we are. if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so, what does heirs of God mean? And so, the way you figure out what that means is not go to a commentator, not go to some book, but ask the Holy Spirit, where are they getting the idea of heirs? And so, they're getting the idea of, you know, Isaiah 24, the Lord will reign on Mount Zion with his elders, gloriously, Daniel... Daniel 7, the kingdom will be handed over to the saints of the Most High and the one like a son of man, etc. And so like, you get this idea of heir of what in light of the scriptures, of course, in light of Genesis. And then uh, heirs of uh, God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What does glory mean? All right. So either you read Plato and say it's immateriality, or you ask the Holy Spirit, where are they getting? Where are they get, where are they getting the idea of glory? And then you turn to Isaiah 11 and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth, the, one, the, the sprout of the sprout of Jesse and the branch, and He will judge between the nations and slay the wicked, etc. Isaiah 40, the glory of the Lord, all mankind will see it. Like this is Habakkuk 2. This is where they're getting the idea of glory is when God punishes the wicked, establishes righteousness on the earth, and and uh, and the trees, Isaiah 55, spring forth in singing, clapping their hands, etc. And so then you get, you know, verse the next verse, I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, etc., and so this is out of the prophetical writings is where he's getting the idea of creation rejoicing. And so that's the point is, is uh, whatever the point was there. All right. Huh? The trees, will clap their hands. trees will clap their hands. It's beauty. Isaiah 35 too.